Hello, everyone, and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Mike? Fantastic. Glad to hear it. I'd just like to announce that we are now the official board gaming podcast of the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. We are also the unofficial podcast of people named Mark who like to make outrageous lies. Uh, with that news going forward, let us proceed with our standard agenda. We're going to talk about games we played last week. We're going to talk a little bit about the news, why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game. Our feature game this week is Gaia Project. And then we're going to talk a little bit about a related topic, which is reskins and second editions and our general thoughts on them, ones that were successful, ones we thought were less successful, and the general ramblings that you come to us and only us for. So with that in mind, what did you play last week, Walker? Well, last week, Mark, we had a games day, so we played plenty of games, but it was a lot of the stuff that I've already talked about, so I'm just going to pick out ones that are new. So Stone Age. I hope this game's not untouchable, because my lord... Just because it says Stone Age doesn't mean that's when it came out. It's a worker placement game that has, I think, my new worst mechanism in it, which is the hidden scoring at the end of the game, where we all finished off at around 175 points, and then someone flipped up their cards and got an additional 140 points. There, boy, lapping. Anyway, that's Stone Age, one of the initial worker placement games. So you, you played it with the expansion style as the goal, correct? Correct. You told me a couple things. Now, I've played Stone Age. I, I, I'm kind of like you. I wasn't terribly enamored with it. I think it suffers from a lot of the earlier worker placement foibles that newer ones don't. Namely, in Stone Age, you there are some spaces that are just wildly better than others, especially getting more people, the so-called nookie hut, which you know I appreciate as a bit of naming convention. And in Stone Age, you roll to get resources, which I don't necessarily object to, to dice, but it does seem to bog things down a little bit. But you told me a couple things about the expansion specifically in Stone Age that struck me as borderline egregious. Uh, you want to talk about that for a second? Sure. They, yeah, they introduced these things called decorations or jewelry, and they come in the form of bone and a stock market. So you can trade in these bone for goods. And they start off at two bone for one good, as long as you get started on the track. And it pretty well negated like the last three resource tracks, right? There's no reason no one ever went to no one ever went to the gold space or the stone space or the clay space. Because why do that when you can just get bone and trade it in for a way better ratio? So it seemed very odd. Your initial characterization of the Stone Age expansion was that it seemed to take away from the base game. And I'm all in favor of giving people increased flexibility, but when your expansion basically obviates the need for a lot of different tracks, that definitely doesn't seem like an advantage. Yeah, it was odd. Yeah. Anyway, like I say, early worker placement game, I think it's been more or less rendered obsolete by later ones. That's not to say that the older worker placement games aren't better, but it's like a lot of the immediate derivatives of Dominion that just came out after that that hadn't quite figured out how to solve a lot of the, the issues that there's not really a whole lot of reason to go back and play. No, not in my opinion anyway. So this was a good week in gaming for me as well. I was introduced to a fair number of new games that I was very, very impressed by. One of them was Corporate America. This was a game that was initially released about five years ago by Teal Frisco and Nothing Sacred Games. And I'd been wanting to try it for a while, uh, but I'd never really had a chance to. And uh, some of our acquaintance got the new Gilded Edition. Yeah, no, I've been watching you guys play it. It seems very interesting. It looks like, a, like some sort of... A government, U.S. government abstract game. It looks very red, white, and bluish, and I'm interested to see what you think of it. Okay, so there are two things to talk about in terms of corporate America. There's the satire, and then there's the actual game itself. I'll start with the satire. The satire is probably one of the better satires that I've ever seen in board game form. There's a whole bunch of rules mechanisms, many of which are fine by themselves, but are rendered even better by the fact that this is a satire about money and politics in America. For example, uh, in many other politics games, I'm thinking specifically of Demacher. Demacher is a game I still quite like and I will defend, and Karl Heinz Schmiel has done a lot of good things. But in Demacher, there's this uh, process near the end of the game where, by virtue of the mechanisms, all of the party platforms kind of converge. And that's kind of unsatisfying as a, as a political, quote-unquote, simulation of German politics. But in corporate America, you can end up in situations where you have a number of people, quote-unquote, running for president, and their platforms are basically the same. And you as a corporation are entirely indifferent to who gets elected. It's merely a question of the specific promises they offer you in the future. 
And that's fabulous. That's exactly, you know, the sort of cynical corporate satire of how politics works in the U.S. You know, corporations who give to both major political parties, uh, they're relatively indifferent because the policies at the end of the day will favor them both equally. And so in, in other games where it's a problem, in this game, it's a plus. Furthermore, there are a whole bunch of things about the game that are desperately unfair, but that are fine because it's hilarious satire. For example, the start player in many player counts has a significant advantage, at least in the first round. And in corporate America, the start player rule is very simple. It's whoever has the most cash on hand. And so at the start of the game, we all went into our wallets and figured out how much money we had. And so it's almost like paying to win, except, you know, you then get to keep the money, which is fabulous. Another great feature, and I I feel almost bad spoiling this because when we found out this rule in corporate America, we cackled madly for a, a, a long time. But if there is a tie in the presidential election, and the presidential election in corporate America, of course, is determined by money. Uh, if there's a tie, then what happens is there's a deadlock in the Electoral College. And in order to break the tie, you find somebody who's not involved in the game and they break the tie by whatever means they want. And so you have to find somebody not playing the game. And this represents the Supreme Court. This is sort of a riff on Bush v. Gore. It's absolutely hilarious. And it's really, really cool. So the satire is great. And that's just structurally. There's a whole bunch of cards in corporate America. There's specific jokes uh, that are specific references to companies because mostly it's about buying and operating companies. So I, I, I like the satire. I think it's good. It doesn't seem particularly slanted. It's mostly just making fun of money and politics. And if you don't find that topic funny, then whatever, stay away. As far as the game is concerned, I don't think you, Walker, would like the game. I love it. I think Corporate America is hilarious and great. It's about a 60 to 90 minute haggling game. Sidereal Confluence, which we've talked about before, and I absolutely adore that too. One of the things that I commented on is that it's not really a game that lends itself to haggling because you want a lot of really smooth transactions. Cube for cube, whatever, I give you these promises. Corporate America is more about haggling. It's like, well, I'll give you two bucks for this favor and make it three. It's like, all right, fine, I'll give you three. It's a lot more about those little finer grain transactions, but it does all the other fundamental things about negotiation games really well. You get differentiation because some people have different interests in different kinds of companies. And so then you want to bribe somebody to make sure that those companies do well. Anyway, it's not the deepest thing in the world. There's a fair amount of uh, craziness, but it's a very, very fun, very good haggling negotiation type game with a great, well-executed theme. And I was completely blown away by how much I enjoyed it. I, I give it my highest possible recommendation uh, it, for, for, that kind of, for that kind of niche. Most negotiation games that I like, and I commented this on before when I talked about serial conflicts, are like, you know, two hours. And that's a bit draining. But Corporate America is, you know, 60 to 90 minutes, much, much more approachable. Uh, give it a shot if you can track it down. It was great. I love it. I'm looking forward to trying it again. All right. The only other thing I have on my list is Scythe. And I'm only talking about it because, once again, it was one of the random endings. I'm, I'm really liking these random endings because I think they're when you have uh, newer newer players or players that don't play very much, it puts a uh, stress on them to get going, right? So the experienced players are going to, like, jump a bunch of stars. You know, once they get their engine going, they're going to be getting two or three, you know, sometimes two stars a turn. So if you put these constraints on them and a, a sense of urgency, then these other people are going to pick up the pace and also keep up with with the more experienced players. Like the one we played was as soon as someone gets to $40, the game's over. And every time you get a unique, not a unique, but the fir- if you're the first person to put a star on one of the victory conditions, then you would get $5. So everyone felt as though there was this huge push. Even though I was going to get my sixth star on the last turn anyway, like so it would have been a normal game anyway, it still got everyone up to, you know, the same level at the same time. So I think I'm really enjoying these alternative endings for the scythe that one does look interesting i thought that, that was one of the better versions of i complained before in our review of side of the of the wind gambit that a lot of the alternate end conditions were do this thing or have six stars and at that point i'm like well you're not really changing much that at least that other condition in the wind gambit is at least they they're compatible in that every time you, you, well, not every time, but the first time you put a star, you get five bucks. So if you're putting down lots of stars really quickly, you're going to end up with more money, which will get you there. But there are other ways to get just cash inside. And so I do appreciate opening things up a bit. And I, I, I still kind of wish that more of the ending conditions were like that, but I'm glad you're enjoying it. Another new game that we played this week was Mythic Battles Pantheon. This is just starting to ship to backers now. People are getting into their hands. Uh, I got mine in trade, so I actually think I got my copy a little bit sooner than some other Canadian backers. Sorry, guys. 
Uh, I, I feel your pain. But uh, this is a, a redevelopment, actually, of a previous game simply called Mythic Battles. And we'll talk a little bit more about redevelopment later. But uh, Mythic Battles, I thought, was fine. And I thought that Pantheon was going to be uh, very much like my friend Alan describes himself, cute but stupid. Alan is at least half right in that characterization of himself. But anyway... And, uh, well, I'll let, I'll let you start, Walker, because the one play I've had this week was indeed with you. What was your takeaway of Mythic Battles Pantheon? It's going to be a little skewed on this show because we're big fans of HeroScape. And I think this game really feels a lot like HeroScape uh, because you have all these units that you get to choose from. They do a great... There's this mechanism where they have multiple balancing values. So every unit has a point cost and every unit puts a number of their own unit cards into the deck. And they also put a certain number of art of war cards into the deck. So there's three values there that they can use to balance these units out. I think that's a fantastic system. I was very impressed with how the card play worked out. It was an interesting sort of tension. It was different from many of the standard minis games of the type where you can activate whatever you want or every turn you just get to act- activate a couple things or it was even different from HeroScape where you can activate any three units in a given turn it was even different in the com- from the commands and colors games which are also card driven but the cards activate any unit you want within a certain section in Mythic Battles Pantheon if you draft a unit and it has four activation cards you're in your deck there will be precisely four way four times you can activate this unit and there is no way at all other than some very very weird peripheral uh, uh, powers to activate that unit more than those four times because once a card is in its discard pile you're not seeing that again until the reshuffle and it took me about half of the game uh, the the first play to really internalize the constraint that that puts on your activation so in mythic battles pantheon you can draft the most powerful unit you want and you can you know have Ares or achilles or whatever big beat stick you have and you can plop it in the middle of the fight but i as your opponent know there's only a certain number of times you're going to get to activate him and after that he's just sitting around waiting to get get his uh, his rear handed to him and so you really have to be careful about what you activate and when and that made things really really interesting and it was a lot deeper and more nuanced than i than i ever expected don't get me wrong i love games where you just get get some big unit and you crash it against somebody else i still love doing stuff like that uh i have no end of patience for games like that that do it reasonably uh quick and dirty but in mythic battles pantheon there's another layer there in terms of of managing your units and even just the trade-offs of different victory conditions there are two different ways to win your standard sort of intro scenario either by killing your opponent's god or by going and collecting different uh goodies around the map and different units play into different strategies uh, you know, as sort of a session report, Walker had a whole bunch of really deadly units, a whole bunch of archers and and uh, uh, a titan named Helios who would just wander around and he was massacring me left, right, and center. And I drafted Hermes. And uh, I don't know how much you know about mythology. Hermes was not really known for killing things. He liked to run away. And so there was Walker running around and dominating the center of the map. And here I was running around the periphery and playing a scavenger hunt. It was, like I say, Mythic Battles Pantheon was far more interesting than I thought it was going to be, so I'm very much looking forward to exploring the system. Definitely in the same boat. I was ex- I was expecting the worst, but got the best. I'm really looking forward to playing more. And I love Greek mythology. Their next project, I think, after they reprint this, is going to be Mythic Battles Ragnarok, and uh, Norse mythology is totally my jam. I'm not the wealthiest man in the world, but here, here's a here's a little uh, a sneak peek monolith. If you want to charge me $500 for a scale Jormungand, I would probably give you those $500. Uh, I, I, I'm a bit weak for those kinds of things. And uh, I already have one plastic mini of Fenris in Blood Rage. But if you want to put a plastic mini of Fenris in Mythic Battles Ragnarok and charge me any number of dollars for it, it would be very hard for me to refuse. But that's enough about my weaknesses. Another game that we played, uh, that, that uh, I played this week, rather, not with Walker because uh, I had fun, so I know he wasn't there, was Galaxy Trucker. I'm a huge Galaxy Trucker fan. Uh, this is probably the first design of Vlada Kavadal's that I think really brought together all his madness of his whimsy and his crunchy game mechanisms uh, together into something that I think really, really sings on both levels. And this was the first time I was playing Galaxy Trucker with the latest models expansion. The latest models expansion came out almost five years ago, but I still haven't had a chance to play it because it requires experienced players. And there aren't a whole lot of experienced Galaxy Truckers around here. I still haven't played the Galaxy Trucker Missions expansion, which is, is, is a great tragedy and causes me to weep. 
but the in the latest models, you get to build a uh, well, I'd say Death Star, but then we might get a copyright uh, notice. Uh, let's call it a let's call it a sphere of mortality. And uh, the great thing about Galaxy Trucker expansions is every time you add one in, you think you've got a handle on the game. You're at the point where you can fly a ship through a course and not have it fall to pieces and not end it all, have it all end in tears. And then you add an expansion and suddenly it's just like you're a beginner again and everything everything goes to pot on the first card. And uh, yeah, my death sphere was not pretty by the end of the, by the, end of the run. And so you can never be complacent. That's that that is one of the best ways to do expansions, as far as I'm concerned. You know, really makes it new for for everyone again. And it was good to truck. It's always good to truck. Every time I I, I truck, I wonder why I don't truck more often. My love for it is like a truck berserker. Uh, so yeah, it was great to see Galaxy Trucker again, and I I really hope to to get more out of all the additional latest models. You're 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 a fan of Trucker, right, Walker? I am for sure, I have the app. I enjoy playing it. Very stressful. I like it. I hear great things about the Galaxy Trucker app, uh, and I've even I've even bought it, and it's installed. Have I ever opened it? No. I just don't <laughs> I have a block when it comes to enjoying board games on my phone. I don't know why. Yeah, the only reason I've, I've played it, I was on a trip recently, and when I'm on, you know, on the bus or on the plane, that's, you know, that's the only time I ever had it open. Like I said, I've not, I've never, all of these Tabletopia and... I've installed them all, but have yet to ever play a game on them. It's just I, 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 I load it up and I just look at it, and you look over on the shelf and you see the games that you can play in person, and you just go on the phone. It's like, yo, let's yeah. go play for real, right? And I just I can't get into it for sure. I agree completely. I I, I normally would play things like that on on uh, public transit and uh, just riding around, but instead now I just listen to uh, to podcasts. By which I mean only our podcast, because it's the only one list- worth listening to. Of course. And uh, mostly I just listen to my parts on repeat, and then people ask me to leave because of my moans of pleasure. But, uh, you know, it's... it's Creepy. I know. They should just <laughs> they should just avert their eyes and not pay... Like, yeah, I agree. It's creepy that <laughs> they're... Know, that they're staring. That that's they're what, staring. That's exactly yeah, what I meant. Yeah. All right. So finally, in games we played this week, I know what everyone's waiting for. What do we think of Rising Sun? And to that point, we haven't got it yet. And do you know why? Do you hear that? down there mailman i'm gonna let you out when you give me my damn game he's gonna break soon mark i know it walker i think your plan might be flawed and here's why setting aside the felony convictions i don't think that he can deliver your game to you if he is indeed locked in your basement no he's got it he just won't give it to me where would he be hiding i don't know okay okay that's give me my game for those listening please send help so let's talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. What has caught your eye in the news this week, Walker? Pretty well nothing, Mark. The only thing I have here is on the subject of news that surprised no one, Asmodee has bought yet another company. You don't say. I do, in fact, say. Must be a day ending in why. What do they buy this time? Uh, just a company called Rebel. It's a Poland a company from Poland. I believe it's called Rebel Games. So I've got some uh, some strange news. Uh, some of you may have noticed this. There was a bit of a kerfuffle online between Phil Eklund of Sierra Madre Games and Ship Naked. Apparently, who's specifically to blame is a matter, of course, great disagreement. But uh, Ship Naked sent a whole bunch of the wrong games to the wrong people and or engaged in some incredibly circuitous shipping routes. Like, for example, all the Chinese backers of a certain kind it, Kickstarter project. All the Kickstarter games were produced in China, shipped out from China, shipped back into China, and then distributed from there, which is fascinating. Anyway, uh, this resulted in Phil Eklund of Sierra Madre. It's basically, a, a in terms of the design element, it's a one-man operation. He got sacked with a bill from Sh- Ship Naked for 100000 bucks, more or less. He said that the shipping costs for a $37 game turned out on average to be about $25 per backer, which is crazy. And so he had to take this head out of his savings. And so he posted this on BoardGameGeek. And I will note, just as a note about Phil Eklund, I've uh, made fun of him in the past. I'll probably make fun of him again in the future sometime. Not today, though, because in his rule books, in his editorializing, I find him occasionally borderline obnoxious. He's made some very dismissive comments about my field and other people who work in fields similar to mine. But when it comes to his correspondence on BoardGameGeek, his actual forum posting, uh, he comes across as a very considerate, very humble, very reasonable guy. Usually it's the other way around, right? Usually when you're posting on a message board, you sound like a jerk. And when you have a little bit more time to think about how you're writing, you you know, you sound a little bit more me- measured and reasoned. But uh, I've never met the man. 
I don't want to judge him personally. I just will say that everything that he's written publicly about these trials have been extremely reasonable, even in the face of, a, of, of tremendous setbacks. Anyway, so a number of people have, uh, you know, chimed in talking about their negative experiences with Ship Naked, uh, bad fulfillment experiences. So the proprietor of Ship Naked, Dan Yarrington, is also the guy who started Game Salute. And a number of people have had very, very bad experiences with Game Salute. Games showing up from Kickstarter fulfillment without boxes or other advertised components or incredibly late Kickstarter fulfillment. Although, to be perfectly frank, I find it hard to fault anyone for that. That's just kind of par for the course with Kickstarter. But apparently it's... Chinese New Year. Yeah. Chinese New Year. Apparently, the claim is that when it comes to Game Salute, it's Chinese New Year all the damn time, uh, and it's worse than others, so I'll take people's word for it. But uh, Game Salute has been, uh, very coincidentally, the week after they've been getting slagged in- on Board Game Geek for possibly screwing over Phil Eklund, with Dan Yarrington having been found by a jury to be in breach of contract with uh, Zev Schlesinger, formerly of Z-Man, they are now forming three new imprints, and so they'll be publishing games under new names, namely Starling, Sparkworks, and Flying Meeple. I'm sure this is a coincidence. So, <laughs> again, I haven't had any bad experiences with Yarrington personally. I've had a couple of Kickstarter projects fulfilled by Ship Naked, uh, the, the Realms projects, for example, and they've been fine. I've had a project fulfilled by Game Salute, namely all the Shadowrift stuff, and it's been fine. But uh, a lot of people say it's been pretty bad, and I take their words for it. And uh, Yarrington somewhat reasonably refuses to defend himself in public post forums, which is entirely the right call to make. But uh, we as consumers sometimes don't necessarily have the full picture. Suffice to say, there's a lot of mud being thrown around. That's what I've been following in the news. That's all I've got, too. Uh, If you like looking at box covers, lots of companies announced lots of games this week. But like I said, you can go look at the box covers. That's all there is. So our feature game this week is a game called Gaia Project. Let me tell you about Gaia Project. Please do. In Gaia Project, you're going to claim one of 14 14 asymmetrical alien races attempting to peacefully colonize the galaxy. And because each race has a different environmental needs, they're going to have to terraform their planets differently. So once you've terraformed your planet, you place a mine there which is going to be your first building, then you upgrade your buildings from there and spread throughout the galaxy. There are six different tech tracks that you can modify and improve certain phases and or actions of the game. They give you more resources, making things cheaper, increasing your range, also getting higher on these tracks will get you more victory points at the end of the the game. The final spot in each track only has room for one person, so it's a little bit of a race to get there. There are, there are specific victory point objectives for every turn. These are randomly drawn at the beginning of the game, so it's going to be different from turn to turn and from game to game. And there's also some left over at the end, so there's a big variety there. So in Gaia Project, there are two main objectives which are also randomly drawn at the beginning of every game. And it's sort of a majority thing. So you either have the most buildings or most power or most of something, and that's tracked throughout the game. So you're going to manage your power, upgrade your buildings, advance in tech, and whoever has the most victory points at the end wins. That is Gaia Project. What do you think about Gaia Project, Larker? I really enjoy Gaia Project. I I didn't play very much Terra Mystica, I think, twice. Uh, once, maybe a year ago, and once before that, you know, maybe three years ago. But I really enjoy Gaia Project. It has, it's wide open. You have many choices. There's a tech tree, which everyone loves. There are no hidden victory points. It's uh, The victory conditions are tracked throughout the game. There's no going to be big surprise at the end. You know exactly what everyone has. The asymmetric powers, there's 14. They have the components. They have uh, seven different colors. Like uh, Every board is a color, so they have like extra components, which are the components are really nice. The molding's nice. The boards are great. All right, I've gone on long enough. Mark, give, okay, me, well, some, give me some pet counterpoints. <clears throat> yeah, well, here's the thing. I don't hate Gaia Project. I'm not going to go and say that it's, it's a terrible design. When it comes to Gaia Project, I'm roughly in the same position that I am with respect to where I was with Empires of the Void 2 or Terraforming Mars. They're fine. They're okay. I just don't quite understand why some people are are praising them to the sky. Which, in the case of Gaia Project, I kind of understand why why it has its audience. It is, you know, your standard medium-heavy 
lots and lots of rules mechanisms Euro game. It doesn't do anything particularly novel with one major exception, and I will give it praise. The power system is, is great. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. The way that it deals with power is neat. I mean, it's hardly novel because they invented it for Terra Mystica, so they're using it again in Gaia Project. But it's one problem that I have with it is that it's seriously overcooked. It's, you know, a slew of barely connected mechanisms that is all in service of, at the end of the day, and this is my chief complaint, all that you're doing in this game is you're building buildings. Basically, that's it. Everything else you're doing is in service of building buildings. There's a neat power management system that gives you the resources necessary to build buildings. There's a variety of tech bonuses that you use so as to build buildings. And there's five different kinds of buildings. You know, you build your mines and you upgrade them and whatever, uh, but that's it. And so you spend, the experience of playing this game is you spend about 120 to about 150 minutes, because it's a a substantial game, and all you've got to show for it at the end of Gaia Project is, well, I built these, uh, you know, seven mines, two science academies, and this this planetary, uh, planetary research institute. And that's okay, it's fine, but it doesn't really grab me. I find it very unengaging. And all of this relatively in-depth involved mental combinatorics that requires significant foreplanning, all in the service of just building some buildings. There's not a whole heck of a lot of player interaction. There's a little bit of drafting off of other people's actions. You want to build next to them so you can get some power bonuses and so your, your trade institutes are a little bit cheaper. Sure, fine, whatever. And you certainly want to score more points than they do. But there's no... There, even in this game, there's even less blocking than there was in Terra Mystica. The way that the map worked in Terra Mystica was it was a little bit more plausible to try to cut somebody off from valuable terrain. Here, because it's space and there are all these empty spaces in between the, in the, the planets, in Gaia Project, it's, it's much harder to cut someone off from the edge of the map because they, if they have the resources to throw at it, they can just bypass. Uh, they can bypass you and get past. Not that that's just often necessary. And so I'm just underwhelmed. After that much thinking and that much processing and that much rules internalization, I want a little bit more to show for it. I can't disagree, but I think almost any game can be broken down to like the one mechanism. No, argument. I don't. I don't think that's true. Like con- spherical confluence, you can say it's all about the trading, right, or all about the cube pushing. Sure, but that's a process. Right? The trading and the cube pushing... No, no, seriously. The trading and the cube pushing is the process. It's how you get... It's it's the means to the end. In Sidereal Confluence, I will grant you that mostly what you're doing is trading and pushing cubes so as to get victory points. And I agree with you if I had said, oh, this is a two-hour game where you're just trying to get points. Yeah, that's a, that's a nonsense objection. That's just stupid. Because any game with points, at the end of it, your goal is just to get points. But in Sidereal Confluence, the, the trading and the negotiation and the, the, the interaction is all the means so as to get this engine going. And I think that actually the comparison with uh, Sidereal Confluence is a good one because the next thing I'd like to talk about and this this will give a little bit more, uh, I think, teeth to, to, to my complaint that there's not really a whole lot there, is how Sidereal Confluence and Gaia Project handle asymmetry differently. One of my chief problems with Terra Mystica, and I think that Gaia Project still has this, is that the asymmetry doesn't broaden your options, it actually narrows your options. My experience has been that in those games, your racial power isn't so much an additional tool or an additional way for you to explore the game state. It's in fact a set of blinders because the way you do well in the game is you just hammer home your racial advantage. And so it narrows your available choices rather than expanding them. A counterpoint in Sidereal Confluence Every race can do something kind of neat, and they have a little bit of, uh, of difference, but that's just grease for the wheels of the negotiation, and it's not the case that that blinkers you off and that's all you're going to be doing. If I'm the unity in Sidereal Confluence, for example, I have my wild resources, yes, and that's my special thing, and that's what I do uh, differently from everybody else, but that's not the only thing I'm doing. I have to make sure that my economy works on a fundamental level past that. In the games, in some of the games, not all of them, and obviously this this is uh, great, more or worse for different powers. But in games of Terra Mystica or Gaia Project, if I've got a racial power, that's what I'm supposed to do. So I feel a little bit railroaded. Am I off base? No, I, I definitely see what you can say, but I, I I don't feel that way as strongly as you do. I think I think the the whole game is there. I think there are advantages to your your racial abilities. I don't think they handcuff you that much. It's not a question of handcuffing me. It's just that... Or I don't think they steer you too badly. I think you can play a normal game. I, there are there are definitely some of them that 
do change the rule setup enough that it is going to railroad you in one direction, but a lot of them give you more options as well. So let me let me stick with two examples from Gaia Project. There's the blue race that allows you to build buildings on top of where other people already have buildings. And once you've upgraded your your uh, your planetary institute, you get bonus points for doing so. And now suddenly you don't have to worry about building restrictions the way that other people do. And you get a bonus point when you ignore those building restrictions. I'm not claiming it's overpowered. That's not my claim. My claim is that suddenly it's like, oh, wait. So either I can build buildings the normal way, which is more expensive and gives me no points, or I can build buildings in the special way, which is cheaper and gives me points. Well, I guess I'll go do that then. And so I don't feel empowered. I feel like I'm being shown a very specific path and I had best walk it. Or the red race that doesn't form empires the way that other races do. Instead, they form one giant massive empire and they just agglomerate and agglomerate and agglomerate. If you're not that race, you are forced to build specific different groups of buildings to join them together and form these little empires. Because in Gaia Project, as is in Terra Mystica, you form these subunits of adjacent or connected buildings, and that gives you points. But if you're the Red Race in Gaia Project, not only is it the case that you are not, you don't need to do that. In fact, you can't even really do that. The rules forbid you from doing it. All you have is the one giant metastasizing community. And so as a result, you don't have to diversify. You don't have to seek out new grounds. You're just always just gradually encroaching from your central territory. And that's fine. The powers are cool. But once you take a step back from the powers and you realize, this is the game telling me how to play. This is the game laying out my strategy for me. And that, that's one of my objections. Well, it's laying out your strategy, but it's, it's it's sort of like, it is what a Gaia Project is. It's figuring out the puzzle of the game before the other players. It's like you don't get these abilities right off the hop. You have to get your main building out and figuring out the puzzle to do that before the other players or faster than the other players without making you know because it's always a uh, case of uh, cut and loss right you know what are you going to give up in order to do it right so you know taking the least loss and getting it done faster than the other players you do agree though that building that planetary institute the one thing that either gives you your racial unique ability or supercharges your racial unique ability that's more or less a requirement by round two that's not that's not just me being stupid, right? No, for sure. I, the more I play, the more I realize how important it is to get that out earlier rather than later. Yeah, and that doesn't... As a specific tactical challenge, I agree with you that there's a lot of thinking that going, going into that and what trade-offs you want to make and you don't want to bankrupt yourself to do it, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that that's what you got to do, and then once you've done that, you got to maximize your racial power because that's pretty much the only way to, to play competitively. Again, I would rather have a game. Let's just compare this to other games that give you special powers or allow you to have special powers. Uh, just, you know, off the top of my head, we both like Scythe. We both think that Scythe is, is, is a solid design. The special powers in Scythe don't dictate how you play. They're just ways that you get additional advantages and bonuses in, in, situ in certain situations. It doesn't specifically say only seek out those situations because that's just not how the game works. Agricola is the same way. You get situational bonuses based on the end. You can try to supercharge your engine with these situational bonuses, but that's not the only engine that you can pursue uh, or Cosmic Encounter or Sigil Confluence or whatever. When there are special powers, I like them to liberate me, not give me a specific path, a narrow path that I have to tread. Maybe that's just the design choice they wanted to go with. Make it, you know, make them more distinct, right? The more power you give the the racial abilities, the more distinct they'll feel, maybe. That's true. But again, going back to Cosmic Encounter, I know you hate the game, and that's fine. It's legitimate. There are many good there are many games I like that I think are illegitimate to dislike. Cosmic Encounter isn't one of them. But in Cosmic Encounter, you have to agree that the asymmetry is huge. You know, the, the power the special powers in Cosmic Encounter are so game-breaking as to be defining the game, but you're not when playing a certain alien. I don't feel like the game is telling me how to play. No, for sure, not and, not during the not during the entire gameplay. When it comes down to what that alien, that Pacific in Cosmic Encounter, the alien powers when they're engaged, like they they apply to a specific phase of the game. You know what I mean? Like they're really good at that particular point. So you're right; it doesn't over encompass like it does in Gaia Project, where it pretty well takes over your whole turn or your whole direction. But I just think that is a design choice they decided to make. Sure. 
in your plays, I know we're not, we're both not incredibly deep into the game uh, because there are people who've played Terra Mystic hundreds of times, literally, because of the fact that you can play it online. So there's vast amounts of data. The consensus is in Terra Mystica that some of the races are decidedly imbalanced. You know, there's the view that from people whose opinions I trust, that if you want to play Terramistica competitively, like seriously competitively, you have to bid for, bid for factions. There's no other way to do it. How have your experiences been so far with faction balance? I don't think I've played enough. I think it's fine so far in the number of times that I've played it. I haven't seen a race that, you know, it's it's much like the buildings or leans where at first you think it's overpowered and then, you know, once you get through a certain part of the game or a certain phase of the game, you know, they, they're strong at first, but then they peter out type thing or they're strong, weak at the beginning and get stronger near the end. So, so far they seem fairly balanced. Sure. Are you worried at all by the track record of Terra Mystica? No, okay. not at all. That's the like I, I've been waiting for a Terramista game. Like I got Lisboa, hoping that it would be our Terramista game. I want. I'm looking for a game that our group plays frequently. Like we're in this cult of the new. I, would, I don't want to say rut, right? Where we're just playing new game after new game, right? And hardly anything ever comes back to the table. We're journalists now, Walker. We, I know we, we can't play games to have fun. We have to sacrifice for our public. I know. Yeah, we always have to play the newest thing because otherwise, no one's going to care. All right, I do have negatives as, as well. Let's see. No combat player interaction. Does everything have to have combat, no, no, no. Walker? I'm not saying it has to have combat. I'm just saying that. No, it's part of this point is that the fact that there's no combat, i.e. there's no real player interaction. Sure. It's the fact that the only interaction is... There's a a bit. I'm going to go over what there is. There's the snatching the planet. No, 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 no. Let me tell you what you think. You shut your mouth. No, no, no. Here's the way it works. You start a sentence with a couple of words, and then I cut you off responding to what I think you're going to say. That's called communication, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right. So, snatching planets... Before the other players do, racing up the tech tree, like trying to get to the top before other players, and taking the power actions. There's uh, a row of power actions like Terra Mystica and what we call QIC actions, and you have to admit that the QIC tokens are one of the best components ever in board game history. They are pretty cool, yeah. So those are the only ways you can pretty well interact, is taking like normal, you know, uh, solo worker placement interaction things, taking things before the other players do. That actually is probably when when playing when playing Gaia Project. That's probably where I feel the player interaction the most. People snagging the QIC or power actions before I can because they are pretty good. When it comes to snatching planets from other people, again because of the way the different races are set up, I feel like it's usually so grotesquely expensive for me to go take a planet that's good for you. I might as well just go take the planet that's good for me anyway. And even if I do block you, quote unquote, block you. I'm probably not going to block you too badly because then you just might have to throw a couple more QICs to get the extra range to go somewhere else. Racing up the tech track as well, I've never, and this was true of the old cult tracks in Terra Mystica as well. Terra Mystica had these cult tracks and they were kind of awkward in a game that's already pretty awkward. It's a whole bunch of different mechanisms shackled together without a whole bunch of thematic cohesion or coherence. Gaia Project's tech tracks are definitely superior to the uh, cult tracks. I'll give them that. But the fact that only one player can get to the very top, you generally don't see a huge race for that. Because typically what happens is you can only focus on a couple of tech tracks at most. And what are the odds that that uh, there's going to be serious competition for that very, very highest level? I haven't seen it manifest much. So I, I, I you know, it is an element of player interaction, but I don't think it's particularly pronounced. No. And I also have, well, you talked about the power system. At first, I felt it was very fiddly and added on, but the more that I play it, I really feel like it is an intricate part of this game. It really ties all the other mechanisms together. Like, everything sort of gives you power. When you build buildings close to people, it sort of, you know, encourages this interaction, you know, working it out between your other players. And it's on the tech tree, and it's on, you know, there's so many ways you can interact with this power thing. I always thought it was like it felt added on, but more I play it, the more I like it, for sure. They've definitely, I I think a lot of the new powers in Gaia Project, the new races in Gaia Project, rather, make much better use of the power track. So let's just explain for people who are unfamiliar. The way that it works in both of these games, you have these three bowls, and you have these tokens that move between the three bowls. And every time you gain power, if you have something in bowl one, it goes to bowl two. Once bowl one is empty, things from bowl two move to bowl three. And once they're in bowl three, you can spend them. 
There are ways that you can game this advancement. You can start burning tokens to advance tokens faster. So there's this notion of tokens coming in and out of your system, which is in turn, I find especially interesting because you don't want the system to be too full of tokens. You don't want too many because then your income gets diluted. If I have six tokens total in my ecosystem and I get, you know, six power, well, that moves all my tokens. That helps me get towards the point where I can use the tokens. If I've got 20, well, then I'm not going to be able to use any of them until I've generated a staggering amount. On the other hand, if I have too few, that's a problem. So that that sort of managing your power, I do find really interesting. And they've done a much better job of making that system a little more fluid. In Terra Mystica, you almost never gained or lost uh, tokens into your into your bowls. But in Gaia Project, there's a whole bunch of different ways to do that. And so that, I think, was a definite step forward, and I, I, I definitely enjoy it. And it's the primary element of flexibility. There are three currencies in the game. Uh, pl- three core currencies, plus there's this notion of power, and power can get you pretty much anything. It's like a better, more sophisticated version of rubies from Caverna. It's not a wild resource, but it's a thing that, if you manage it properly, can get you that little extra thing you're missing, and so it can help compensate for your economy. So I have, I don't really have much bad to say about power. I think it's a great system, and I think that it's been integrated much better in Gaia Project. That are all my. That's all my points for Gaia Project. So another, well, another thing, though, about Gaia Project I think is a little bit problematic is I don't like how there's early game snowballing. It is absolutely one of those games where if you mess up your first turn, you can be done, especially if you build the wrong building too soon. Again, this is entirely a game about building buildings and upgrading those buildings. And if you spend too much upgrading buildings incorrectly, your income is just kneecapped. And to a certain extent, your ability to progress in the game is a function of your least good income set. And so if you do just do a bad job of setting things up in rounds one and two, that's it. You're pretty much done. There's not really a way to come back. There's no catch-up mechanism, which is fine by itself. But this is very much a plotting game of near-perfect information of just gradually expanding your buildings. And so in a game that's two-plus hours, I can find that somewhat unfortunate. And, you know, when you combine that with a limited player interaction, I feel like I'm just kind of solving a spreadsheet, more or less. Let me, let me sort of sum this up with uh, the, uh, a somewhat weird, but I think very, very apt comparison. When I'm playing this game, or when I'm at least thinking about Gaia Project and, and thinking about its shortcomings, the game that I'm reminded of, in terms of a game that did something similar really well, is Through the Desert, the Reiner Knizia tiling classic. Here's why. In Through the Desert... You're similarly, all you're doing is you're just putting out camels. You're expanding your presence. It doesn't have any notion of income. It doesn't have any notion of special powers. And it doesn't have any notion of all the all those other elaborate subsystems that Terra Mystica and Gaia Project layer onto themselves. But what you get in exchange, because of the way Through the Desert is, is designed, is... You get so much more player interaction and you get so much more tension in terms of tempo and in terms of geographical situation. Gaia Project is, again, it's just about a game about expanding your presence and building out more more buildings. So is Through the Desert. But Through the Desert is tense, it's fast, and I'm constantly butting up against the expansionist efforts of all my fellow players. And so when I'm playing Through the Desert, I don't look at it and wish that there was an elaborate income scheme, elaborate system of marginal special powers, or I wish that there was some kind of unique path that only I could follow that no one else can. Because again, that limits the interaction, not heightens it. That limits the range of choices, not expands it. And so in a way, when I look at a lot of these games that are these medium-heavy Euro games with lots of economic systems where at the end of the day all you're doing is just plopping out buildings, I end up wondering why I'm not playing Through the Desert. And I was wondering if you think I'm insane for making that comparison. Not for you personally. Like, if that's the way you feel, then... Then I, there's nothing I can say. Like I, I, <laughs> I personally think you're crazy, but I'm allowed to feel that way. Okay. I really think I, Gaia Project is just a game about figuring out puzzles faster than your opponents. Yeah, but so is through the desert. Uh, very short term, correct? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, look, they're they're operating on different timescales, but that's one that that's again one of the virtues of a game that gets the same element of of engagement but faster. Uh, but I think the scale of time invested to feeling good about, you know, what you've done is there. Like if you, you know, you make one, you know, good move and through the desert, yeah, it's a good move. But if you know, like through these past three turns, you've worked up to this point in Gaia Project, it gives you much more satisfaction than, than you would get through, through the desert. For you, maybe for me, it's the other way around. After playing Gaia Project for two full hours and I look down and I'm like, oh, I put out six mines, a couple of research institutes and trading post. Okay. 
That doesn't that doesn't give me a profound sense of what satisfaction. But when I cut somebody off and through the desert, when I uh, make that play that they didn't see coming, and suddenly they can't get to that oasis, I get I get a certain amount of thrill from that. I'm not saying they're the same. I'm not saying they're the same game where they satisfy the same, even that they satisfy the same design space. What I'm saying is, is that a game of Through the Desert in many ways captures all the good things that I think Gaia Project sometimes aims for and doesn't get to. I see where you're going. You know, but I don't want to come along. <laughs> There's a first time for anything. And uh, finally, we've gotten to the episode where Walker was more condescending than me. <laughs> I didn't know that it was possible. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Uh, I might have to go kill myself because uh, obviously everything that I know to be true is uh, is false. Condescending? That's, that's hurtful. All right. So if you like puzzle games, long space non-combat euros then Gaia Project will be for you yeah maybe on to our topic which is totally related Gaia Project is a reskinning of Terra Mystica and from what I've heard and from what I've played it is very very similar and how does this as a consumer make us feel how as a company should you go forward with doing these types of practices? Is this in the best interest for our hobby? We're going to bring up some, as far as I know, like usual, we just have a topic name and we go in our own directions and we sort of merge it all together in some weird semi-stewing pot of awful logic. That sounds delicious. Yeah, I know. It's so delicious. All right. So let's just start with what what we're on right now. There's two games, actually. Let's just do them both sort of at the same time because it's sort of the same thing. Clank is sort of a fantasy type setting and then Clank in Space came out almost right after. Same when Terra Mystica, fantasy type setting. Then Gaia Project, reskinning in space. How does this make you feel as a consumer, Mr. Bigney? So, as a consumer, I accept the fact that game design, especially in the Euro game space, is very iterative. Namely, you are relying on the design work that's gone before. And I look at the evolution of Terra Mystica to Gaia Project very much in the same way that I look at the evolution of, for example, Ua Rosenberg's worker placement games or in the evolution of deck builders. There are lessons that are learned, and once those lessons are learned or demonstrated very well in a design, they're frequently adapted into future designs. So I, I, I kind of like that. That having been said, if I were you know, into Terra Mystica in terms of its base game and its expansion, would I want to rebuy the game? Well, that depends. It depends on how significant the gameplay advances are. It depends on how I feel about the new theme. I do appreciate that these innovations are being made. I object somewhat to your term use of the term reskin because I think there's a difference between a reskin and a redevelopment. A reskin is when you take the game and you change nothing except the graphical underpinnings. And you could have made a sci-fi themed game that was exactly the same as Terra Mystica. Right? You could have just changed the graphics. They didn't do that. They actually went and they rethought about the mechanisms. Now, they didn't rethink about the mechanisms specifically in terms of sci-fi. It's very clearly the case that this isn't a heavily thematic experience. They were just tinkering around the edges and they just made things hang together a little bit better. And so I appreciate that. But I think just to call it a straight reskin is a, is, is doing a bit of disservice. I suppose I, I'm wondering if they I looked at the weaknesses that Terra Mystica had and and brought up this new new product, right? And thought how best to present this, and decided to put it in a fantasy, in a science fiction setting. Yeah, I prefer when that kind of development work can be done with expansions, when a new expansion can really sort of serve to address uh, fundamental game imbalances. For example, uh, Fantasy Flight in the mid-aughts had this habit of releasing terribly, terribly broken games and then fixing them not with new additions, but with expansions. And, you know, say what you want about how impermissible it is to release a broken game. At least if you're going to go fix it, try to fix it in terms of, of, of expansion material so that there's minimal cost of entry for the consumer. Now, ideally, what you do is you ship replacements to all your original uh, purchasers so you don't have to worry about it at all. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to do that. So the, the, the classic example of that is Game of Thrones, right? The first edition of Game of Thrones was more or less broken out of the box with some pretty degenerate strategies. And the first expansion is considered practically a necessity because it addresses those things. So, but that having been said, if instead your approach is to do is to do a second edition, which is Fantasy Flight's new strategy, right? That's what they do now. 
they they put a second edition on everything possibly you know sometimes only a few years after the first edition was sold you know again i'm of, i'm of two minds i like that this development work is being done i find it interesting from a game design perspective to see how these problems are being addressed but sometimes i hate having to buy the same product twice and then we have two different designers like Eric Lang and Uwe Rosenberg who have the same design process but come out with completely different games as they move along this same sort of theme right we have Uwe Rosenberg with you know the t- with the puzzle placement you know he's got patchwork he's got uh Indian Summer and he's got Cottage Garden Cottage Garden and and so instead of just you know reskinning the same thing or or uh, doing new additions, he comes out with complete new new games. He brings in other mechanisms in order to bring out a different game for us to play. So in the case of Eric Lang, he went from Midgard to uh, Blood Rage, and now he's gone from Blood Rage to Rising Sun. So instead of bringing out new additions or expansions, he's taken what he felt is best from these games, made an entirely new game. And gave us something new to play. You think there's a straight line in terms of development process between Blood Rage and Rising Sun? Because I, I don't really see... Yeah, they've got the same artist and the same publisher and it's the same designer. But I don't really see any solid gameplay connections. One of them is a drafting game. The other one's a role selection game. They don't... I mean, there's not there's not a whole lot of overlap. Well, from what I've seen so far, because of course, you down there won't give me my game is that you are drafting from these orders that you're going to be playing every turn. You are bringing in these gods to help you in each territory. I think there are quite a few similarities. And even he said, you know, I know he said at the beginning, he said it was a, a sister of Blood Rage. I know that was long early in the design process. And I'm sure it's 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 veered, you know, largely from what he his first vision. But Okay, well, once we actually played Rising Sun, we can actually comment on, on what we think the design similarities are. I think it was more in terms of an aesthetic continuity and a publishing continuity rather than a design continuity, but we can have that disagreement later. Sometimes I think that we should be happy that we're not getting more straight reskins, just new window dressing, because, you know, that's usually pretty, pretty unfortunate. There, I, I would like to point out one exception, though. I am a big fan of one reskinning. Uh, there was the there was the original trilogy edition of Risk, the Star Wars original tri- trilogy Risk, which is actually a decent game, which was given a straight reskin into Mass Effect Risk. And I actually think it's better as Mass Effect. I've commented on this before. The victory conditions make more sense, and I think the, 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 the factions are better. So sometimes, by accident, you can end up with a better project, uh, a, a better product with more thematic coherence and, and thematic integration. But usually, instead, all that you get is, you know, like The Walking Dead Monopoly, which, you know, makes no sense. Yeah, that's the... The other end of the spectrum is the con- total the total consumerism of it, where we have like fifty different, you know, monopolies and clues and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's they're not really for us though. They're not really marketed towards us. All right, then we have another another line, which would be the Zombicide line. So we have Zombicide and its crazy number of expansions, and then right into Black Plague, and then right into Green Horde, which is very much all of the same mechanisms again, and on top of that. Uh, massive darkness, right? Which also doesn't veer very far from the line. So all of these games, very similar. It feels very much like a churning commercialism, yeah, cult of the new money grab. Massive darkness was the first time I felt that they really made a solid effort to change the system significantly. Massive dark. So Zombicide to Black Plague, they're incompatible systems so you can't use all the components together but really it's fundamentally the same experience not a whole lot was done and i'll agree with you that's just a question of you know selling more plastic to people who want more plastic and that's fine i have nothing against that it's just you know not for me in that system massive darkness i think was a little bit more interesting uh sometimes it's you know sometimes i love me the second editions sometimes second editions do something really genuinely interesting like for example i think that the second edition of battle lore that fantasy flight put out is is an interesting addition to the commands and colors line i like all the other commands and colors games but i think that the second edition of battle lore is the most different of all of them and most of the changes i think are solid interesting game design choices so in cases like that where you're really going to iterate a system and really give us something radically new i think is 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 great I am also a sucker for the second edition of Roman Bones. I, 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 I'm more or less alone on this, and you can all sneer, but you're all wrong. I love me the second edition of Roman Bones. Uh, I thought it was. I thought the first one was great. I think the second one's even better. That's an instance of a designer really paying attention to what people didn't like about the first version and, and really trying to reiterate on the design. 
But this actually dovetails with another question that I have, and that is, you know, just to address the different ways to handle early adopters. Because we as early adopters often get the shaft. You know, having to, you know, I've already said I hate having to buy the same product twice. And in the context of genuinely new entries into a system like Battle or Second Edition, that's fine. I don't feel like because I have Command and Colors Napoleonics or even Battle or First Edition, that, you know, Battle or Second Edition is, is really sticking a thumb, in, a thumb in my eye. But when it comes to something like the most egregious example being something like a new printing. Sometimes there's just a new printing, and so the new expansions won't be compatible with the old things. That happened with Galaxy Trucker back in the day. There was the very first printing of Galaxy Trucker was completely incompatible with all the expansions. So they tried to put out an, a component upgrade pack or whatever to, to, to bridge the gap, but it was expensive and incredibly limited distribution. I wasn't able to find one, so I had to rebuy the thing. Well, I, I didn't. I traded my old copy away and got something else in exchange, so I wasn't totally hosed. But that really, really is unfortunate. But uh, sometimes that also happens with edition changes as well. An example of a game we both like is Shadow Rift. Shadow Rift first, first edition, I as an early adapter got, uh, uh, adopter got that version, and then all the new expansions are now only compatible with the second edition of Shadow Rift. To give credit where credit is due, the designer Jeremy Anderson made the second edition of Shadow Rift available at cost for people who had the first edition, so kudos to him on that. Uh, but there are a lot of publishers who aren't so generous or so considerate, and then there are a whole lot of people who are left holding the bag. Well, Iron City comes to mind. I know a couple of people who got the first edition of Iron City, and then only a few years later they bring out a second edition with no you know, compensation for the first early adapters, like you say. Yeah, which is weird, because Ryan Laucat did, in many ways, the textbook example of how to fix a game right, because... Empires of the Void, the first Empires of the Void, not the second one, which is in no way even a re-edition or a second edition of Empires of the Void 1, but we've talked about that before. Empires of the Void 1 had a free print-and-play expansion, which is one of the best expansions I've played in terms of fixing perceived issues with the base game. And that he just gave for free. So it's you're right. Sometimes sometimes even the same publisher or the same designer can do the entire spectrum from the best to the worst. Now, do you think there's like a time limit that there should be on on from first to second editions or anything like that? I'm... I agree that it's not very classy if you release a new edition very shortly after the first one and you make zero effort to allow early adopters to upgrade their copy. For a while in war games, this was a serious problem because in a lot of war games, and I'm talking about the historical stuff here, you know, GMT and MMP and and, uh, publishers like that. But now GMT especially is now very, very, very good. If there are problems with the rulebook, if there's a living rulebook, if the map gets corrected, if some cards get corrected, whatever, they almost invariably now give you a very cheap or at cost upgrade pack so you could bring your first edition components up to second edition. So they're very good at, keep, at taking care of their customers that way. And there have been, you know, better and worse ways to do it. And I agree that the time is a factor. It's tough to tell. It's a balance. I just think that as a publisher, if your new edition is to deal with genuine problems in the first you should make an effort to make sure that your consumers are taken care of. If it's the case that new expansions are only going to be compatible with one of the two editions, try to make sure you take care of your consumers. Yeah, Flames of War did a great job of that. If you brought in your old rule book and you gave it to the you know your local shop dealer, he would give you like the new rule book for free. It would, they did a great job. Then the next thing I want to talk about is the other side of the coin, which is Games Workshop. Mm. Right, and their miniature system and how they bring out edition after edition and and sometimes they purposely change the codexes to make your old models obsolete. They're enforcing you to buy the new models. It's the same thing as CCGs. Every wave, or a lot of the new competitive games from Fantasy Flight, every wave seeks to obsolete the past wave. So there you're kind of locked into a system where it's not even a question of a second edition it's a question of the 17th edition and the 18th edition and the 19th edition and you have to remain current or you're going to be left behind that's one of the reasons why i don't play those games anymore that might sound negative but there's another side to that as well is that it it gives it shows that they're supporting that system right well sometimes people put out games and then that's it it's out there they don't touch anymore they don't keep intact they don't update the rules they don't do anything and that's it this sort of shows that they're there they're supporting their product you know, they're putting in the effort to make it better over and over again. But and I know, but, I know it's obvious they have shareholders and they are there to make the money. 
and like everything else we're saying, you know, you can either buy these things or not. This is, you know, we're just talking, you know, is this good for the market or not? But there's a better way and a worse way to do it. When you release a second edition and you change a whole bunch of cards, try to offer an upgrade pack. Whether it's at cost or even if you make a profit off it, whatever. I realize it's hard when you're talking about a very, very small number of units to do those things. But I'm sorry, you kind of owe it to your fans and it's a good way to make, to, to pay it forward so that people can invest in your products knowing full well that if they change, they're not going to get the shaft. When Fantasy Flight basically brings down the, the, the nerf hammer on a unit and makes its car, whether this is Imperial Assault, whether it's Netrunner, whether it's uh, X-Wing or whatever, they don't offer replacement cards. That's a problem for me, especially given that in uh, competitive tournament environments, there's a very strong bias towards using original cards. I don't know the best way to handle it, but when they don't try to do anything to address it, then that's a problem and I object. Even Dominion, how old is Dominion? And they recently updated their thing and they offered an upgrade pack. Exactly. They did a great job. I have no problem, and this is one of the one of the things where and and a number of designers are better and worse better or worse at this. When you show up and say, "Hey guys, I've got a second edition. I've changed all these things," and then people say, "Okay, well, what about my first edition copy?" There's often this very douchey sort of passive aggressive, disingenuous reply. It's like, "Oh, I'm sorry for making my game better. I guess I should have just left it be broken." It's like, "No, shut up. Take care of the people who've invested in your product," and. A lot of people. This is actually a line that uh, that David Serlin and a lot of his fans invoke all the time. David Serlin's the guy who did Yomi and Puzzle Strike and a, and a whole bunch of related games in that universe. They're like, oh well, you know, I, I I take game improvement very seriously. It's like, well, look, everybody does. Every 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 game designer takes these things seriously. Don't pass off your obsoleting my old copies or, or, or you know, leaving these previous editions incompatible with Futures expansion just as your devotion to purity. Uh, and pretending as though other people don't. And furthermore, don't compare it, and this is specifically the thing I have against David Serlin, he often compares it to video games. It's like, oh, well, they update all the time. It's like, yeah, most of the time when they upgrade, it's free. And when it's not free, people complain. And guess what? That's the exact same situation you're in here. If you want to charge me 20 bucks for a Yomi upgrade pack, fine, go ahead. That's that great. Or even just connect it to a print-on-demand service. You don't even have to offer a new SKU. You don't need to stock anything. Just set up an account with one of the infinite number of print-on-demand services and just be able to give me a click on a link, and I'll order it from them. That's fine. I'll do that, too. But if you're not going to bother at all, then that's an issue. This actually happened recently with uh, a, a, the new edition of Gloomhaven. There are a number of cards that got fixed in Gloomhaven. Uh, some of the classes got rebalanced. Uh, the class that I recently retired in Gloomhaven, no spoilers, uh, it turns out got nerfed rather significantly, uh, which kind of explains because he, he was <clears throat> pretty badass. Uh, but anyway, and uh, people are asking for just a PDF of the corrected cards. It currently exists in uh, text format, right? There's the errata on, on uh, you know, a forum thread or what have you. And people are just saying, hey, would you mind putting it together in a PDF of corrected cards so I could download and print it? They haven't yet. They say they will. So good on them. I, like, there are th- you can do it in a more or less classy way, and you can do it in a more or less difficult way to make sure that your fans are taken care of. That's all I'm saying. All right, I have one other game. Eclipse. And due out this year is Eclipse 2nd Edition. Yeah, I don't know, man. We'll see. Well, these are things that I'm, these are reasons of why I like it. See, I never owned Terra Mystica and I wanted to. And then the Gaia Project, I could get that. Clank and Sp- Clank came out. I never bothered to pick it up. I was away when it was released. I came back and look, Clank and Space is out. So I, you know, get the newest, greatest thing. Sure. I never got to get Eclipse. I never, everyone else had it. Now, second edition out, I can pick it up. And I, I in all these cases, fortunately, I am not going to be on the, on the downside. It is, it is worth noting that that is one of the benefits of Kickstarter. Early adopters now have one way in which they're privileged over late adopters. I mean, yes, you're a late adopter, so you get, the, you get the best version of whatever someone buys. At least now the early adopters get Kickstarter exclusives. And so they, I'm not suggesting that it's tit for tat, but at least there's some sort of uh, balance. I, I'm going to withhold judgment on Eclipse 2nd Edition until it comes out. Um, I think... There are some re-editions. I just want to, to give credit where credit is due for some re-editions that, are, that take the re-theme seriously and think about how to make it, make it better. And that is, I've reviewed this game before, it's Star Trek Frontiers. Star Trek Frontiers is sort of Andrew Park's spin on the Mage Knight board game. 
And they looked at things seriously and said, okay, well, what, what are some of the mechanical differences we can make to better model the fact that these are starships flying through space with crews instead of some sort of semi-immortal god king wandering around murdering everybody? And they did that through away missions and, uh, you know, a subtle nudge to the diplomacy system. And in so doing, they managed to correct a perceived imbalance in the base game because in the base game at some point uh, in Mage Knight, diplomacy becomes borderline useless. But in Star Trek, diplomacy remains u- useful for the entire time because you're not always shooting people sometimes you're negotiating even with final bosses and it also just fits with the theme better in star trek they were always negotiating with weird alien races and so it works and so i think that if you're doing a second edition or if you're doing a a, a re-theme there are ways to do it intelligently to make the product not just better in terms of smoothing out the perceived problems but if you're going to retheme it you can also just make it substantially better what i'm looking forward to most and i, I wish more redevelopments would work this way is and this I think is is really just the sign of a master designer at work, and that is the evolution between Tigris and Euphrates and Yellow and Yangtze, because they maintain some of the sort same core ideas, but they're radically different, and that's an indication of the kind of design work that Reiner Knizia can do. He can take the same core concepts and spin it out into a very different experience. It, it looks again we haven't played Yellow and Yangtze. But it really does look like it's going to be vastly more different. I think it's a little too soon. I think 10 years is a little a little early for a second edition. <laughs> it's been more than 10 years. Yeah, it was, I know. <laughs> it was just a shot in the it's dark. Been, it's closer to 20. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and at the end of the day, that's that's where I'm at. I like looking at this renewed development work. I like it when a designer returns to their earlier work and elaborates on those threads with either the new lessons they've learned or with progress in the market, either in terms of of game components or game mechanics. And if I like a game enough, I will buy it two or maybe even three times. But I feel like a sucker for doing it. I wish we could get it right the first time, but I recognize that it's not often possible. At least, as I say, now we have... Early adopters do have the benefit of Kickstarter exclusives now. That is one way in which the market gives them a little bit of, of, of goodness for all the times that they get shafted. Agreed. Well, that just wraps it up for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. We appreciate it a great deal, even though we like to make fun of you. You can find us on Facebook. That's where that's the best way to get in touch with us collectively. If you want to drop a comment there, we will get back to you if we can. If you'd like to email one of us individually, you can reach walker at justrolledadice at gmail.com that's j-u-s-t-r-o-l-l-d-a-d-i-c-e at gmail.com you can find me mark bigney on twitter at all the games you like until we talk to you again we hope you have a good week in gaming and uh, if you get a copy of rising sun before we do we hate your guts very much so until next time guys peace you've been listening to so very wrong about games produced by michael walker and edited by mark bigney Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.